collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. everyone it's good to be here again this is the beginning of we're looking at law enforcement systems and um, originally I'd thought about doing just criminal justice separately and the reason we're going to look at law enforcement is because it's such a complex system within a system I'm really pleased to have with us today Fatima Mohammed who is the executive director of the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention. Did I get the name right, Fatima? Yes, you did. Great. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing as well as I can be in these times, these incredibly difficult times. Yeah, thank you for that, for the honesty of that. So I know that you have like spent a good part of your life in New Jersey. You've done a ton amount of work in Newark. You're born in South Plainfield. You lived in Philly, right? So your heart is really out here, and yet you've been quarantining in Minneapolis, and we know there's so much going on there. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a story about yourself that, you know, you and I have been colleagues and friends for years now, could you tell us a little, like a story about yourself that has a kind of listeners know you a little bit more the way I know you and also has us understand your passion for anti-violence work? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm from Plainfield, New Jersey, and I thought I would start with um, a story about the first time I had an encounter with the police. I was four years old, and my father, who's been in and out of prison most of his life, was in a kind of an episode of rage and been witnessing him chasing my mother, and which is very, very painful to see and witness. And so the police were called, and they kind of busted through the door and arrested my father. So I saw them arrest him. And so I think they're, you know, his hands are, are shackled and they're kind of asking questions of my mother and doors open. And my father, there's a cigarette that falls from his pocket. And he asks me as a four-year-old to pick it up and put it in his mouth as maybe like this act of defiance, right? Because he's handcuffed 
and this big white officer comes up to me and he holds out uh, his hand and he says, give the cigarette to me. And in that moment, I had to choose between my father and this police officer. And I was completely terrified that the officer was going to kill me. And so I gave the uh, officer the cigarette. And I remember so distinctly the level of guilt and shame that was along with law enforcement. I, I knew immediately I'd done the wrong thing and was really worried that they were going to come back. And that set in motion, this whole response and terror. And I think what is so powerful for me about that experience is I knew that was typical in the neighborhood in which I grew up. Trust in the police is nowhere. There's just no sense that that is, they were coming to help, um, that they were coming to support. Instead, it was try not to get killed by them. I mean, that that was kind of, as a four-year-old, no one told me that directly, but I had that in my body. It was kind of locked, and we know about trauma, it's really locked in the body. I know that the challenge of having a loved one who was also experiencing a level of distress and was perpetrating harm is a challenge in society. And my work is to kind of think about alternative ways of addressing that issue that don't rely on more harm and punishment, right? If we can do the work of creating opportunities for health and healing. So if someone were talking to my father and supporting him being a father in our family, then the ways that he expresses trauma, which is through harm, would have been mitigated and shifted. That's what I've built my career and my life's work is to work on that healing and ensure that we have opportunities to meet people where they are and support them before they cause harm. That's often because of their own trauma. So it's really getting at the root causes of things through health and healing and not more punishment, policing harm. So is there kind of an alternate scenario that you play in your head at all about like another little girl who goes through that and what would happen? What would her experience be given your work? Absolutely. I have had time as an adult to talk to my father about that and other incidences, just as for the your audience to know that my you know father went to prison and my parents divorced, and there was about a twenty year gap between those experiences as a child and when I reconnected with him um in that time, uh, actually, I remember our first conversation, he apologized to me and he shared with me, you know, that he was on drugs and that there were lots of other things that he was processing. And there was a real focus on reconciliation, a real desire to connect. And that alone was so healing. It made me think to myself, well, 
what if he had support, right? What if he had, he shared with me some of the traumas he has as a child. So I can imagine a world where black boys are seen. The trauma that my father experienced is addressed and healed so that pattern of response is transformed. I don't think that anyone wakes up and wants to be in a system in which they're poor, they're disconnected from economic structures. That's not something people sign up for. And so it's not just about an individual, it's about reimagining the systems around them to ensure that people are thriving and they feel that sense of liberation. So I imagine for other little girls and boys out there that they're truly in a system that is set up to support their success. And tell us about your work now and how does what you do now contribute to creating that world? So I'm director of the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention. We are um, a national organization, progressively international, So it's a network of programs that focuses on what's called hospital-based violence intervention. And it's one of several models that use public health approaches to effectively address violence in communities without a reliance on the criminal justice system. So we're uh, successful at reducing levels of violence by providing health and healing. And the way you do that is by supporting people. It's kind of like what I said, it's, these are programs, and I'll talk specifically about hospital-based violence intervention, but there are other programs that do different things. But hospital-based violence intervention takes a look at um, the revolving door of violence in communities, that it's often people who have been shot that uh, get shot again. Um, They're in tightly connected networks of people who harm or are harmed. And so it's this revolving door, right? It's not everyone in a community who is experiences violence. It's people who are often connected to one another. So we know that when people go to the hospital, the standard of care has largely been, you get shot, you go to the hospital, you get patched up, and then they discharge you. That means that they're going back out into harm's way. They're going back potentially retaliating against others. So this idea of a hospital-based program is um, you provide wraparound support. The programs hire people from the community who sit with folks at the bedside, patients at the bedside, Mm. and help them work through the trauma, but also thinking about safety planning, their own care, housing, transportation, uh, education, employment, like just what is their life plan? And then they follow them. They're their mentors, their case managers. They're out there helping them navigate, making new decisions, but also helping transform the systems to pay attention to and support these patients so that they don't come back to the hospital or perpetrate more harm. So we're member programs that so we have about 40 programs in the country and about 30 new programs that are emerging. So we're about in about 70 cities. And uh, we are a big community of stakeholders that do this work all over. 
It sounds like it's shifting the, the approach from a mechanic approach to being in the hospital and getting shot to a community approach, right? So it's shifting from, okay, you got shot, you have a broken car, go into the mechanic, get it fixed, get out of here, to, okay, let's really look at what are the circumstances of your life, what supports do you need, related or unrelated to this particular thing that happened, Right. And I I remember us talking before about your work, and one of the things that really kind of stayed with me is that what your approach takes into account is that ending up in the hospital because one is shot is oftentimes a turning point or a potential turning point in someone's life, right? And so what you're doing is you're leveraging a moment that's traumatic and actively taking the time to have it be transformative. Yeah, actually, we attribute the thinking, the kind of core philosophy of the program to a young man of color, Sherman Spears, who was shot and paralyzed, actually, in Oakland. And he was part of a kind of a youth program at the time. And he said that when he was shot, no one came to visit him or when they did. They came and were like, you know, what do you want us to do? You know, we got you out in the streets or doctors didn't really talk to him, you know, so he's sitting at the bedside having all of these thoughts about what's about to happen when he leaves. And he's like, this is the opportunity for someone to be talking, right? He's like, I reconsidered my entire life and no one knew, no one was there. And so he took it upon himself to come back to the hospital and in his wheelchair and talk to people at the bedside and say, listen, I've been through what you've been through the things I was thinking, what are you thinking about? And really began that process, as you said, that community care. It starts there. We want to go further upstream, right? There are systems we want to transform, but this is a, I think, a critical moment we, that there's a golden opportunity there. And it's two ways, right? It's not just about where's the opportunity for the patient to transform, but where's also the opportunity for the system to transform, right? When someone gets shot, that means that the systems around us haven't been constructed to uh, support this life, right? So it's a failure of the system. So we need feedback. Okay, if someone's getting harmed, feedback for the system, what can we do retroactively? Do we need grocery store in this neighborhood? Do we make employment opportunities? And what's critical is that some of our programs, the hospitals actually help drive some of that change, right? Because themselves are employers, right? They have procurement contracts. So we're really trying to think of it, not just as a program for individuals, although it is, and it's very powerful, transformative trauma healing work, but what role can we play in transforming systems using uh, or supporting by listening to the needs of patients and their communities? Can you give us an example of how the failure of the system ends up becoming the violence on the person? Yeah. We know that there are a few drivers of violence. And one of the the biggest ones is kind of persistent economic inequity. And it's not that you're unemployed and then suddenly, you know, you're violent. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when there is persistent concentrated poverty or people don't see opportunities before them, 
there are some learned responses to that. It's structural violence, essentially, right? I'm, I'm defining structural violence. A lack of housing, food insecurity, you know, poverty, lack of employment opportunity, broken education system, all of those things, you know, together, and as well as an over-reliance on criminal justice, right? So this kind of, well, you know, the, the police are all folks see. Those contribute to, and in proximity to the others who are perpetrating harm. So you see all those things in your neighborhood there's a learned social behavior, which is how do we mitigate disputes? We perpetrate harm. Harm's been done to us, right? There's past trauma on the individual level, but there's also past trauma on the structural level, on the uh, generational level. And so those all are kind of in a pressure cooker. And so there becomes this learned response. And so here's how I'm going to settle disputes. Here's how I'm going to work through this pain. And it's pretty remarkable and our violence intervention specialists say this all the time, the healing work is often when you're sitting at the bedside and patients share, no one's really asked me how I'm doing, right? And something from that patient's childhood, they might be 22, but they may share a trauma that happened when they were six, the first time they witnessed someone getting shot or something, right? And their first run-ins with the encounters with the police, the sorts of things that people share. And so it's really about, again, it's that individual and level healing work, but it's also recognizing that people don't just wake up one day like this, that it's really, (laughs) there are a lot of structures that contribute and all at once for particular neighborhoods. So, and you also founded Trauma to Trust, which is a trauma training for police officers and community members in Newark, New Jersey, where basically police and community would engage in a lot of these conversations about personal trauma and systems. Based on both your anti-violence work now and your anti-violence that work then, Like, how do you make meaning or what do you understand about the unrest we're going through and everything that's happened kind of in the past kind of longest 10 days or longest two weeks that we may have ever had in our lives? You know, I want to just first say that the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent response is a both a tragedy, full stop, and one more page in a book, a tome of tragedies that are just so fundamental to aggressive and racist ways in which Black people experience the world. And so there are those that experience this type of this violence all the time. And it's just that we're paying attention more. That's what's different. And by we, I don't even mean, there are people who have been fighting in the trenches for years and know and pay attention. It's that now mainstream folks are paying attention. And so I just wanna share so that I'm so grateful for the lineage of demonstrators people who really spoke in this truth, even when folks weren't listening. And that continues today. 
I think that's really powerful. It's just important to name and say, I believe that the fundamental, and you talked about this program I developed, Trauma to Trust. I think that the fundamental wound in this country is that the creation of the criminal justice system was so informed by this historic legacy of slavery that, and we've not done enough to completely transform that system. And so what happens is we have human beings who decide to become police officers and, you know, they are humans who likely care very much about their communities and want to contribute in some way. In fact, my brother is a police officer. And so I know and have seen him think about, you know, how do I contribute to my community? But the structure itself is arranged in a way that makes it very difficult to engage because there's this missing piece, which is acknowledging that policing as an institution, there's been a lot of harm. And that fundamental challenge makes both officers angry and hurt and sad and the communities they serve, right? Especially African-American communities. So you're dealing with people who may want the same things in their community. They wanna see the same things. They want peace. They want beauty. Right there, it's like there are people who want the same thing, but because of the way our systems and structures are arranged, they are pitted against one another. Just to bring in a metaphor, right? It's as if we, we have the expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? It's as if we created this apple tree, which is a criminal justice system rooted in enslavement, rooting in the slave catching system, right? And then we expect different kind of results. And then we're frustrated that's an apple tree and not an orange tree. But no one's actually naming that the reason it is an apple tree is because of the seed that was planted that transcends our life, my life, your life, you know, the officer of the officer of the officer's life, the commissioner of the mayor of the mayor of the mayor's life, right? It transcends hundreds of years of our personal lives. And so we're trying to shift like an apple tree to an orange tree without ever actually being honest about what that tree is. And so I hear what you're saying. It's like everyone actually has the same vision. Like everyone wants, you know, peace. I don't know if everyone wants equality. That's a whole other story on its own. But to at least everyone wants peace. Like there's some basic human rights that we can kind of agree upon. But then we get really caught up in what the structures of how we do things that are based on how they were done and how they were done and how they were done and how they were done, going back to that initial seed, which was enslavement. Yeah. And I think that makes the, this idea, the work of policing impossible. How do you operate on top of that? And officers walk into it, you know, these human beings who decide to put on a uniform, you know, whatever personal intentions they set, you know, and a lot of police talk about the nobility of policing, right? For communities that have been harmed, that uniform, the badge is in itself a a symbol of harm. And people very much want to transform that without that acknowledgement. And I think that's what's really at play here. 
I think that this program was designed for people to talk to one another about that directly, about the trauma of the system itself. And not just for talk's sake, but to say that we have an opportunity to transform those systems, uh, change policies, uh, change the contract, right? And in a place like Newark, where you have the leadership of the mayor, Raz Baraka, you have the growth of alternatives, community-based violence intervention work and hospital-based violence intervention work. The police now have uh, partners in the community who are doing the work of connecting to people and, again, providing health healing opportunity to them so that they're not we're not kind of relying on the police to do everything. This program existed in the context of that larger uh, transformative work system change. We can't kind of do this all overnight. It takes time, but it's really remarkable to see places like Newark, New Jersey and other cities begin to really invest in those sorts of programs in order to create a new arrangement for how people get care, how people get support. And give us an example of something that happened in that work. I know there are lots of powerful stories. Can you choose one for us that kind of helps us place? Like I'm thinking about how you having done the work you do may have like a completely different look or like eye hole, right? Into what's happening right now. So could you give us a, like a story of what happened in your work then? that then kind of connects to how you make meaning from now? Hmm. So let me describe a little bit more about kind of what, when you say describe a story, we'd have these small groups, it'd be 10 to 15 officers and roughly 20 community members, some, some configuration like that in a room for somewhere between 16 and 20 hours over the course of a few days. And we talked about trauma, what trauma is both at an individual level and at a collective level. And uh, we talked about the trauma that communities face and see the historical legacy of slavery. But we also talk about officer trauma and what they see day in and day out and the mental health burden of doing that work uh, all the time, the high suicide rates, what have you. And I have many stories of the moment, the sequence of it is that officers will kind of talk about their own trauma. So they understand what we mean when we say trauma before we then talk about the historic legacy of slavery, because it's a big topic. So you have to have some reference point. Like when you say trauma, what are you talking about? And then kind of imagine it at a different magnitude. And there are these moments I remember in this, uh, one in particular of an officer looking like, you know, we've done some level setting about slavery and the history of policing and, and slave catchers. And, and the officer kind of looks up and he says, you know, when I put on this uniform, now there's a call and I come to the scene. I think that people see me and they go, ah, you know, the, the police officers here, help has arrived. You know, he's like, that's what I think is happening. And you know, he's like, but what you're telling me now, what I'm now getting is that when you see me come, you worry 
you see this badge and you think that's the harm, that's harm coming. And it was just like this really deep moment of recognition that no matter that, that the actions he's taking with the badge had such an impact was itself the trigger, right? The trigger was the badge. It was this big aha moment. And he's like, how could I not see that, that the structure itself that I'm in is not helping you? And that was this big aha moment, right? Cause it's like, I think I'm helping. And for the community, that's really powerful that officers get that there's a lot of trauma there because it tees up opportunities to then create and change systems. So people can then uh, talk about, well, let's look at use of force policies. Let's look at, right, there are lots of other, that from those discussions, you can start looking at, well, how do we arrange this in a new way? How do we rethink it? And in Newark, um, that work was underway because Newark was under a consent decree. The federal government had come in and found that there was a lot of injustice in the department. And so there were already a lot of policy change work happening. But, you know, as you can imagine, you can change any policy. How does it actually impact officers? Are they behaving differently? Are they, so they've got to understand what this work is. So these community police dialogues must ensure that as policies are changing and they're contributing to those policy changes, that officers understand the context in which this change is happening and not be defensive about it. So how do those experiences inform how you look at the unrest now? I believe that unrest is so much, I think people look at what's happening now and they say, well, you know, the officer who put his knee on Floyd's neck was arrested. What more do these demonstrators want? Or now the other officers have been arrested. What more do these demonstrators want? And I don't think that people recognize that demonstrators are really trying to shine a light on a system that has been broken for a long time. And that this is, it's one incident that's part of a much larger challenge. It is a real call for a new arrangement, a new social contract, and it runs very deep. So, you know, people will look at things like, why would an officer who has so many complaints against, against them, why would they be able to stay in a department? Why are officers responding to calls connected to social issues, right? Why are, like, people are just asking these deeper, deeper questions. And you're hearing things like uh, Minneapolis, the school board voted to no longer have a contract with the police for Yay. schools. Why, you know, why are officers in schools? Like the expansion of their role into all these different parts of society that when instead there could be others who have different training. And the state actually doing a civil rights case against the police department to like look at what are the connections between state and police department, right? Like what are the laws and the guarantees? It's also a test of our system in a different way, right? Like where can we create accountability? 
where can we create new systems of accountability that we haven't created before? Or where can we use old systems of accountability in a new way that allow us to be in integrity with our values? Yeah. So that gets down to another kind of important piece, which is what are our values? What do we value? And I think that this unrest is about value. It's about racism. And that if we don't value people of color, we design systems that don't center the liberation, the love, the thriving of people of color. And I think that that's fundamentally where people are pushing to shine a light on the ways that this shows up and to say that if you are going to redesign, if you're going to do an analysis, do it with us, do it with communities of color, make sure we're at the table so we can tell you how this actually impacts us on the ground. I think that's incredibly important. When police departments are going about redesigning their systems, they have to do it in partnership with communities, in partnership so that what they design together is a reflective of a set of values. And I think that what's so challenging is it puts a lot of burden on communities to have all this sad, you know, you got to be kind of a lawyer and look at laws and you know what I mean? But I think you bring the lawyers to the room, right? So they can say, here what's possible. That's the kind of thinking strategy or collaboration that's going to be needed so we can redesign systems. I think what's hard is that, you know, the Minneapolis Police Department's been through tons of training, procedural justice training, and they've done all these reforms. And I think people are scratching their heads, like, how could we have avoided this? And the truth is that people are fighting for something so much more fundamental, which is the whole contract of policing itself. And you can't train your way through that. It's much deeper than that. It's about accountability. And how do you develop accountability systems? You need kind of, um, so you trip a wire and it's like, okay, once you get to this threshold, you know, mm. things come into play so that it doesn't get that bad, yes. right? Yes. There's a word for it that I can't recall, but... It sounds a little know, bit like predictive reasoning, right? Like it's looking, it's paying attention to how it gradually gets, right? Like this officer had a number yeah. of complaints, so it was allowed to let right. go until it becomes... Although, you know, it could have happened that, you know, this very likely has happened before, just not on video camera, right? But in terms of creating systems of accountability, we look at it, even if it's a model, right? It's not 100% true, but we look at it a model of a situation gets progressively worse when it's not addressed. And so you're saying creating clear thresholds where when certain things get like poked or activated or triggered, you're like, okay, there's an intervention needed here because we know right. there's a risky situation here that can degenerate. Exactly. Left alone. And if left alone, because we don't have those measures in place, those, wait a minute, something's wrong here, right? The alert systems, you know, it's like an alert system, oh, you know, yeah. if you're right. You know, if you have a basement and there you're under an inch of water, you don't go, oh, well, it's only an inch. 
not a big deal, right? You go, oh my God, my basement's flooding. I got to do something about it. We got to find where it's coming from, right? People understand that because it rots the structure. It rots the structure. An inch of water can rot the structure of a home. So how could we not have a similar system when there's an inch of water? That's too much. Like how can we install sensors in our system, right? It's like one bit Absolutely. of movement, a little bit of movement or a drop of water is enough. But it, like there's a sensor that yeah, says, hey, be careful. And not only be careful, but here's what you do to ensure that this doesn't happen. Because it's not just get rid of the water, it's find the leak, right? It's you've got to find the leak. And I don't think we do that enough in the current social arrangement we have. And that's really a big problem. It's a real challenge. And here's the thing, for officers who get up every day and do their job and do it with so much dignity and respect and honoring, they are implicated when there's a leak. That's the problem, is that the people who love and do work and their communities love them and appreciate them, if they're in a leaky system, right, then when all this jumps off it's like they're part of a profession they're wearing a badge that represents all that stuff and they don't want that either so it's this idea that this the broken system that leaky basement is rotting the structure for everybody whether you are good at what you do and people love you and you're doing really well or not and that is the thing that we all have to be at the table recognizing and doing something about. I want officers to be just as motivated to find the leak in the basement as we are. And that's why I think this question about the officers who stood by and watched is so important, right? Why this question about what happened to the officers who didn't directly have their knee on the neck right, of George Floyd are also implicated because it's this idea that, well, who stands by and watches, right? Your job is to respond to harm. How does that work? And it's this deeper role of accountability, right? Accountability includes everyone around, but we don't have that structure. It's not set up that way. And it must be so that those officers are safe because they know that they're all watching out for one another and our communities are safe because communities watching out as well that we have to create those sensors is that what we're calling calling it now you know the sensors in the basement so that a drop of water if there's a drop we know something's leaking and we can go and fix it so one of the things that made the new york times that you know newark new jersey been baffling in the past few days that Newark, New Jersey, that was a city that was always on, often, you know, on the front page for violence, for both civilian violence and police violence, somehow has not experienced looting at all in the midst of this total upheaval and uprising. And I actually contacted one of our officers there like a few days ago and said, is it true? Right. So I'm wondering, like, do you think some of the sensors there worked? Like, what do you think about your work contributed to that result? Well, again, I don't see them all in a vacuum. It's going back to leadership. 
the leadership of Raz Baraka, when he started, he saw public safety. He wanted to reimagine public safety and really create a new contract, right? And he worked directly with activists. He worked from the beginning, from the beginning. And he has implemented all this change within police departments. He has hired people from the community who are through the Newark Community Street Team who are violence interrupters. There is a hospital-based violence intervention program. There is a domestic violence center. Like he has invested in, his leadership and his team has invested in alternatives and done the training with police departments and ensure that those who are fighting on the front lines have a space to do that on an ongoing basis because there's a rich history of uh, demonstrations in Newark. And uh, you know, for those of your listeners who don't know about the rebellion in Newark, those are the stories of people who, again, it was an officer-involved murder that really uh, set the world ablaze. And I think that we have responsibility to honor so that the story isn't quite, look, there was no violence on this day, right? That somehow puts the burden on, isn't there, you know, looting, rioting, like that. It's like, oh my God, look at all the ways that a city has deployed creating a system such that this day and the next day and the next day, there's peace, right? And again, peace, not because people aren't protesting, right? Peace because they get to clearly articulate the needs, the demands, and be heard. That's what I mean by peace. There's no disturbance in the system because people are being heard. That's what the story should be, right? I love that. Peace is not that we all agree. And this is why I always like butt heads with people where it's like like a society where trauma is transformed or a society that's peaceful doesn't mean we all agree and we don't have conflict. It means we're able to hear each other out and shift according to the needs of each other based on the value of what we have to say, coming to what you were talking about before values, Right. right? Based on the values of what we have to say and the value, the profound value of the sacredness of every life. That's exactly right. So the story is about all the work that was done for years before that day. That's the story. And that day is just another day, right? Uh, Demonstrators demonstrate all the time in Newark. They have value. They are honored for that. They are, people listen, change happens. There's a response. And so there's no need to ratchet up, right? Because people are being heard. That's the story. And systems are transforming and they see it. They can measure it. They notice it. And so if you read it, you can see the ways in which community were a part of. It wasn't just the police, that the police did some magical tactic right? It was that they were sharing in the responsibility with community that this be just another day of demonstration and that people are aligned that this is wrong, right? What happened to George Floyd was wrong and that this police department doesn't stand by that and that community doesn't stand by it. Happening to the police department, right? We will hold you accountable. That's what the demonstrations are about. We don't want violence here on any level. And 
I think that's really powerful that they were sharing in the responsibility of creating safety of people to freely and peacefully share their pain, their grief about this tragedy and continue to call for change. That's the story. And I very much want people to understand the years and years of work it took, the history of this movement to make that the case. Yeah, and as you were mentioning, the rebellion of 1967 was one of the like most violent ones <laughs> across the country, right? Like the city was like decimated in terms of buildings and everything, right? So to go from that, right, to experiencing a community and the resilience, the resilience of a city. But as you said, it's decades of work. And just kind of want to highlight something you already said, just to like bring it up to the surface a little bit more, is that the system doesn't have to be perfect for there to be peace. What there has to be is an ongoing experience of voicing a concern and seeing it addressed and shifts happening, right? So it's like we are heard in a way that things shift, and then when things shift, it creates also a different kind of shared belonging because we know that you know, our city may not be perfect, but we're co-creating the city that will come. So this is not have to be perfect, but there has to be a power shift, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that sometimes people hear that and they go, okay, so if I, you know, you can give someone crumbs and think, well, we're not perfect, but this is what we're doing. Mm, yes. When we say there's a shift, we mean a power shift. The power has to shift. That's what equity is. D different than equality. Equity is about power being shared. And once power is shared and there is an opportunity for shared decision-making that you actually can't move without my being here and that there's true accountability, then as we are moving, if we have setbacks, whatever, well, we're in this together. We're designing it together. And oftentimes, Black people don't have that, right? That shared accountability, that the sense that the people who are put um, in places to make decisions represent the needs, the values I share. That's very important. And that's what we mean. We, people want to see a shift in that power in decision-making. Yeah. It's not shifting a leaf, right? Going back to our apple tree analogy, right? It's naming that it's an apple tree and not an orange tree, like starting there, right? And then it's more yeah. than like shifting a leaf, let's say, like, let me go get a cocoa bean bush leaf and just like yeah. glue it on there, right? Like glue it on with crazy glue or something and then say, no, this is a cocoa tree. <laughs> it's a cocoa bush. It's no longer an apple tree. These are the things we do, right? Okay. And I love what you're saying about shifting power because it's like, what does it look like to shift something that is actually fundamentally embedded in the system. And systems move to protect themselves and to react. So it means that not only do you make a shift, but you also, from systems change right work, right? You also monitor how the system reacts in other places to accommodate and backlash. Yeah, and when right. we're committed to that power shift, then we learn from that backlash and we put our values first again and again and again. I mean, a, an example of that, if I got too theoretical, is just 
our housing systems. We had anti-discrimination law, housing anti-discrimination law, and then, you know, individual real estate companies started putting pictures on applications. And so they were able to discriminate another way without ever having to say race, right? Without ever having to use the discriminatory language. But now, hey, we had pictures. We knew that, you know, Tyrone wasn't going to be shown a picture like a house in Rittenhouse Square. And, you know, Becky wasn't going to be shown a house in Germantown. So Mm. basically the system adapts to preserve the old status quo. And so when we're looking, when we're talking about installing sensors, it's not only installing sensors once and then let's forget about it. I did what I could do. It's continuing to monitor and pay attention. So what do you think, like, how do we leverage our power? Oftentimes systems are thought about something that are bigger than ourselves and that we have no power over. Like, based on your work, what are some of the ways people can invest? So first we'll say, I think there's it's a double-sided coin. I think we've got to invest in the things we want. We have to put energy to envisioning and putting resources into the things that we want. And that's where I spend my time and my labor thinking about those things and identifying resources and policies that can invest. So as I mentioned, I think that the work that's been assigned to the criminal justice system needs to shift to health systems. And I think our work doing hospital-based violence intervention or the larger uh, street interruption work, I didn't spend a lot of time explaining that structure, but hiring community members that interrupt violence in communities before they get to the hospital. Uh, You know, we hire community members to interrupt violence for patients who've already been shot so they don't go back out into violence. And there are lots of other kinds of programs like that. We want to invest in those, right? In your own individual community, viewing, does my community have access to these services? If so, what are they? Thank them, acknowledge them, raise awareness about them. Those are really powerful because it's continuing to put our eye towards what what we want. I would say that in particular, because the issue of violence is almost exclusively something assigned to the police. So this idea that uh, community members can actually do work of is, is, I think, very, very powerful. On the side of police reform, there are lots of incredible efforts that are happening nationally. Forgive me, I don't have uh, this toolkit up. May- give me a moment and I can uh, tell you the name of this uh, really wonderful toolkit that looks at the civil rights toolkit. So go to civilrights.org uh, and there's a toolkit for a new era of public safety. It's an, an advocacy toolkit that I think can be a really powerful opportunity to address some of these issues and to really help investigate all the opportunities by the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. I would just kind of taking a look. I think that we are looking for solutions that look at power in particular and where there are tears and how power is arranged. Those are the sorts of things that, so I would continue to educate yourself about how these systems work. So, you know, this question about use of force policy, who developed it, right? Why can't an officer be fired? Like those sorts of questions 
are really good ones. And if you do digging and research, you discover, oh, okay, this is the reason why. Well, what can we do to change that? Right? That those are those sorts of things that everyone can be determining, discussing, thinking about in their own communities. And I believe also in this time, and this is a reminder for everybody, that we have to also take care of ourselves. That in other words, I, I think that we're in incredibly traumatic times and that pain and grief is just rising to the surface. And community care in this time is all the more important. Checking in on your neighbor, because we are dealing with a global pandemic on top of incredible civil unrest, on top of lots of brutality, on top of systemic harm, right? Structural violence and racism. It's so overlapping and it's all up at the surface. And if you're a demonstrator, being sure you're sleeping, you're hydrated, that you have time to breathe, to go for a walk, you know, something to notice the sun. If you have friends, neighbors, uh, loved ones, reach out to them to say, I care about you. Those are the community care structures, because I will tell you one thing. It is incredibly important that our work transforming systems include our care. Otherwise, we die. <laughs> we are the ones that have heart attacks and wind up prematurely um, going. So it, our care and healing our trauma is incredibly important. I think for those officers who are out on the front lines too and rethinking lots of things to continue to educate themselves, to listen to those who may be different pay attention because there is space for you in this movement. This is not a us versus them. This is about calling for something that ultimately transforms what it means to be a police officer in the society into one that actually is what for the officers that really care, right? It's about that becoming the image, right? But we've got to rearrange things. And that's what this is about. It's not about this you particular, right? It's about the systems changing. And I think that's a really important message. So do well to take care of yourselves. I think that's incredibly important. Sometimes that includes uh, taking a break from social media because there's a lot of traumatic images. You've got to take breaks to just kind of be with yourself in this time. And I am holding space and thinking so deeply about everyone and really hoping that we get through this with new arrangements that are transformative. How do people get in touch with you, Fatima, in our last minute? You can go to thehavi.org, the H-A-V-I.org, and uh, you can learn more about us. And, um, you know, there's a button if you want to contact us. Love to hear from you. You can follow us on uh, Facebook, the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention. We're at the Havi on Twitter. Follow us there continue to learn about us. We continue to share information about this and think about ways of people forget people to get involved. Thank you so much for taking this time in the midst of everything that's going on in, in your life right now. And there's a lot, there's a lot even in addition to kind of what we shared. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. 
If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.